Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Mistakes Were Made. Special for two reasons. One, it's a live recording with uh, a pretty brilliant guest. And second, maybe the bigger reason, I'm joined by a, by a fresh new co-host today, Alex Rosenberg. Alex, thank you very much for being here. And thank you for describing me as fresh. Well, it's, yeah, I, I don't know, does, does the meaning of that word change? No, no, it's it's. I just I. It's been a long time since I've been been called fresh. It's 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 a nice. Uh... Within this format, you're fresh. In other formats, I I can't speak to that. You 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 may be a little tired in in, in different contexts. Uh, but look, thank you very much, Alex. Do, do you want to introduce yourself quickly to the to the listeners? Uh, sure, for sure. Uh, I'm the editor of CityWire RIA, so I cover financial advisors here in the U.S. And the reason that you're here is we did this interview together, and our interview. This week was with Howard Marks, the co-chairman, co-founder of Oak Tree Capital Management. He doesn't need a ton of introduction, but but I've started now, so I'm going to finish. And this was recorded live at the Fairmont in San Francisco. It was, it was pretty, uh, just an honor to, to, to get to speak to him, first of all. But it was also a pretty interesting conversation. You know, he's the master of the market, actually he has a book called Mastering the Market Cycle. And we tried to talk about where we are right now in that cycle. And he explained to us that this is a time when the what he calls the pendulum is starting to shift. I don't want to give too much away, but it, it it's actually we caught him at a very interesting moment when things are starting to get interesting for those who invest based on where we are in the market cycle. Yeah, absolutely. I thought he was very open, very um, very honest about where he thought things were, and and frankly, sort of the opportunity set that he sort of sees at the moment. Now. This was a live recording. It's going to sound a little different. It runs a little longer, but I think that's a good thing. Now, before we get to our interview with Howard, we do, of course, have our segment. It could be worse with Jamie Catherwood. Howard, of course, a great student of financial markets and history, so I'm sure he'd be interested to hear from Jamie. And this week, I believe we have um, something that's somewhat relevant in the wake of all the, the, the scandals going on in the crypto world at the moment. We have a little historic case study of a very early Ponzi scheme. So, Jamie, over to you. The story of Sarah Howe offers a fascinating example of how fraudsters can commandeer seemingly benevolent movements like ESG to scam investors. She is also an example of what is originally the Howe scheme and later called the Ponzi scheme. In 1877, Sarah Howe was a fortune teller living in Boston. Before long, however, this clairvoyant charlatan became the founder of an innovative bank, the Ladies Deposit Company a bank run by women for women. Howe's bank had strict qualifications for depositors. For example, it did not accept deposits from men, wealthy women, or women with husbands that could financially support them. Eventually, the bank boasted more than 1,000 depositors. In some estimate, some estimate, the bank received $13 million in deposits by modern values. Even more impressive, the bank never advertised its services and relied entirely upon word of mouth to attract new customers. So what was the problem? The ladies deposit company offered depositors take that again. The ladies deposit company offered depositors 8% interest paid monthly and new clients received the first 3 months interest up front. Thus, a $100 deposit would gain $96 in interest by end of year, essentially doubling the depositor's money. As you've probably guessed, Howe's bank was a pyramid scheme that relied upon using new depositors' funds to pay out interest to existing clients. This scheme worked until 1880, when a run on the bank caused everything to collapse and expose Howe's fraud. She was then sentenced to three years in prison. 
Yet, Howe clearly did not learn her lesson, for when she was released in 1884, she then founded the Women's Bank, which offered depositors, wait for it, 7% interest paid monthly and three months interest paid up front to new clients. She kept up this scam for two years before investigations ran her out of town and into hiding. Unfortunately, all the women that had invested with Howe were left with nothing. Thank you very much indeed, Jamie. And now let's get straight into it. Here is our interview with Howard Marks. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today, Howard. I greatly appreciate it. I believe you flew in from Asia the last night, this morning. So Just for this. Just for this, right? This is only this. So thank you very much. Um, now, look, we, we've done a, about 30-something episodes of this podcast, and we start them all pretty much the same way, which is easy for us and easy for our guests, which is to ask them about one or some of the bigger investment mistakes they've made and what they've learned from them. So if I could pass that over to you. Sure. Well, you know, when I uh, confronted the title of your, of your podcast, uh, I thought about it. And, and, and the truth is that, number one, I'm too removed from individual investments at this point to talk about them in depth. And, 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 and also, um, you know, our approach has never been one of, of, of heavy concentration. So, yeah, of course, we've made some mistakes like anybody else, but it's hard to talk about a big one. Uh, it sounds a little jerky to say I've never made a big mistake, but, but you know, it's just not the nature of what we do. Um, but when I think back over my career, uh, I think the, the answer is that nobody ever told me 40 or 50 years ago that that this period would be as great as it has been. And I think that the, and I'm writing a memo about this now, <clears throat> about the last 40 years, and I think it's been the, probably the greatest period in the history of the world, and certainly the greatest period in the history of investing. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I could have been more aggressive. Uh, it's not my nature, but history shows that this would have been a great time for aggressiveness. Now, it, the truth is that I, was very fortunate to find some areas that were uh, unplowed and, uh, and, and some things that most people wouldn't do. And the, the, you make the big money in investing when you do the things that nobody else will do and they work out. High yield bonds in 1978, uh, you know, I, I, Citibank said to me, would you start a high yield bond fund? I said, sure. I, I, you know, they said to me, there's, there's some guy named Milken or something out in California. Can you figure out what that means? And uh, that turned out to be the first uh, high-yield bond fund from a mainstream financial institution uh, at a time when 90-odd percent of investors had a rule against investing in non-investment-grade bonds. Uh, distressed debt in 1988 with my partner Bruce Karsh came to me, uh, and I hired him, and he, he had this idea of doing a distressed debt fund. Again, I think the first uh, such fund uh, from a mainstream financial institution. And then 1998, uh, I, I was going around saying, I've got the four worst words in the world, emerging market hedge fund. Uh, you know, this is after long-term capital melted down and the Southeast Asia crisis. So, you know, uh, these were all scary words at the time. And uh, I thought it was really important to uh, take a risk-controlled approach in these risky markets and uh, reassure clients that way. and. Um, and, and I think it, is, it has been 
a good approach. So uh, uh, on the one hand, it, this has been a period, for the most part, in which the more risk you took, the more money you made. Uh, but I, I think that risk control was the right thing for these markets. And now it is, it's the motto of Oak Tree, yes. Absolutely. I, I wanted to follow up by asking about mistakes that others have made. I just want to quote from the most important thing. You say that sometimes there are, peop uh, there are times when other investors are making errors of commission, they're buying too much, times when they're making errors of omission, they're failing to buy, and times when there is no glaring error. What kind of time are we in right now? Uh, I think, you know, w w what's going on now is, is a significant change in the environment. Uh, in short, you know, as I said, I believe the last 40 years were the best of times, uh, dominated by the decline of interest rates. You know, um, uh, I, I have a slip of paper on the wall of my office. I had a bank loan outstanding in the 70s at a floating rate. And I had the slip from 1980, which says the rate on your loan is now 22 and a quarter. And that was December of 80. Uh, 40 years later, in 2020, I was able to borrow at two and a quarter fixed for 10 years. A decline of 2,000 basis points. And I, I believe, and this is the theme of the, of the next memo I'm working on, I it's called the sea change. And I believe that, that when you, if you think about how much money investors made collectively over the last 40 years, which of course is probably impossible to calculate, I bet half of it came from the decline of interest rates. Declining interest rates have an incredible, powerful force. They make everything more valuable. They make everything do better. Uh, they reduce everybody's costs. They make it easy to borrow money, uh, easy to lever up. If you, if you say, I'm going to buy, buy this company, it returns 10%, you can do it with 8% money, it's free money. But if, you, if, you, if when you go out to borrow the money, you pay six, you make even more. And if, if the rate declines or if when you go to refinance your debt, you're at four, you make even more. And that's what happened. And, and I, 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 you know, you just don't hear people, I mean, I, I don't claim to know something nobody else knows, but you don't hear people talking about the incredible catalytic effect of, uh, of the rate decline over this period. It was a tailwind. The way I describe it to people, uh, I was just in Asia, so I would say, you know, you go to the airport, and the, all these new airports, they have moving walkways. So you stand on the walkway and you travel this fast. But if you walk on the walkway, and it's, and you, then you go that fast, and you think you're walking fast, but you're not. It's just that the ground is moving. And, you know, I think that the person who bought the 10% company with 8% money but paid six and then refinanced at four thought, look, what a great investor I am, you know? But I think that, that the declining rates pulled everybody along. My basic thesis is that it's over. And you know, um, I don't believe in macro forecasts or macro forecasting. You just wrote a memo. I did, I wrote a memo called The Illusion of Knowledge. But there's one thing I'm confident about, which is that rates are not going to go down another 2,000 basis points. In fact, my guess is that over the next 10 years, they're not going to go down at all. So what that means is that everything that worked before is going to be different this time. And if you think about the strategies that made you money over the last 
uh, first I talk about the last 12 years since the global financial crisis, but it's really uh, dates all the way back to 1980. If you're in a different environment, then different things will work. You know, uh, Einstein said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting uh, different results. In, in this case, I think insanity would, since the world has changed, I think insanity would consist of doing the same things and expecting the same results. Uh, for the last 13 years in particular, we have been in a, a seller's market for assets, a borrower's market for financing, and it's been a very tough time for value investors and bargain hunters. And I think that changes now. By the way, among our activities are, uh, are the bargain hunting we do in distressed debt, what we call our opportunities funds, uh, epitomized in our special situations funds, et cetera. Uh, and you know, when you have, when you have a, a highly motivated seller, a, a desperate seller, an urgent seller, you get better bargains. That seller hasn't existed since the global financial crisis. You know, the, the holders have been complacent, the buyers have been eager, the greatest fear was fear of missing out, uh, the environment was easy, the Fed was stimulating the, the, the economy, money was cheap and plentiful. Where would any urgency come from, any desperation? And so it, it really has been a tough time for, for bargain hunting. I'm going to try to ask you this without asking you to make a macro forecast, but if the last 40 years have been buoyed by declining rates, what could we be in for? I mean, beyond the change in investing styles, which is, which is interesting and obviously important to people in this room, what does it mean for the overall economy and, and markets and everyday people? Well, <clears throat> if you think about the things that I just described as characterizing this last 12 years, um, so since in, it, the Fed was able to be highly stimulative because uh, inflation was quiescent, uh, now it's not. Now we have the highest inflation of the last 40 years, and that constrains the Fed's ability to cut rates and, and, and do QE. So uh, obviously the Fed will not stimulate to the same extent, <clears throat> can't. Uh, in fact, for the next year, it's going to be crunching. Uh, it has to slow the economy, and it has, to, it, it has to punish people's psychology. You can't have people going around saying, this is a great environment, I'm going I'm to buy and borrow and invest and, and hope to beat inflation. So, so you're going to have tighter money, higher, higher cost money, uh, slower growing economy, uh, challenges to corporate profit margins and earnings, um, uh, a more constricted uh, uh, credit market, capital market, you know, because the banks are hung with these bridge loans from the deals. You know, it, it, it must be really tough to, you, you, you make a, somebody agrees to a buyout in June and you commit to give to raise 10 billion for it uh, when interest rates are three percent and then six months later you have to actually raise the money now now the, now the 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 market for that kind of company is down 30 percent and interest rates have doubled how are you going to raise the money and so the answer is you know I think quite a lot of Elon Musk's backers are in this situation. pardon me I think quite a lot of the, twi the Twitter banks are in this situation yes this exactly one, yeah. so well Twitter Twitter is is an extreme example, but um, so you have these you have these loans essentially on your books, at you have to you know and you paid the company ninety eight cents on the dollar for these loans and you have to go out and peddle them and you end up getting eighty or seventy 
you lose 20 or 30 points off the top. It's very tough, but that discourages you from future activity. Uh, buyers can't get credit, so, so the rate of buyouts goes down. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, in the, in the future advanced uh, environment, FOMO is not going to be the dominant characteristic. It's going to be actually fear of losing money. Uh, so risk, uh, risk aversion will rear its head. That's great for the bargain hunter because we want to buy in a market where not everybody's falling all over themselves to put money to work. Uh, so and 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 uh, so you, you you know you want to borrow some money, right? So you go in the some b bunch of banks and you you say to him, "Would you lend me uh, whatever it is?" And he says, "Yes, I need eight percent, and I want a full set of covenants." And then you come to me and you say, "What about it?" I say, "I'll take seven percent because I want to make the loan." So I say seven percent. And uh, I don't need so many covenants. And then you go to that young lady over there, and uh, her boss has been beating her up because she's been losing market share. And the, the last five loans she didn't get because somebody else underbid her. So she says, I'll take 6%, and I don't need any covenants. Now, she gets to make the loan, but maybe she gets too low a yield and too little safety, and, and she gets in trouble. So this is a process I call the race to the bottom. And I wrote a memo of that title in February 07, which was, I think, descriptive of what was going on at the time. And uh, you know, kind of, uh, kind of uh, anticipated the global financial crisis, and so that's that's a borrower's market when you can get the bid, the, the lenders to bid against each other to give you money, and they bid in terms of less return and less safety. I think we're going to be in a lender's market now, in which the lender is going to say, "You want money? Nine percent, full full covenants, and we want warrants or kickers or something." So. The, the, the who's holding the cards it, it changes from time to time. That's an important aspect of the cycle. And I, I, I think we've been in, gone through a long period of time where the asset owner and the borrower held the cards, and I think that's going to be less true. So we're, I'm really excited about, about the next year and the next five to ten years. You said, I think, before, you know, obviously no cycles are the same and you can't necessarily you know, look at one and compare mm. it to another, but I suppose um, you mentioned that period yeah. in, in, in the great financial crisis. Are you at that moment now with, with where things are? Has that passed already? Or? Well, I mean, look, the, the idea is the same. I don't think, I don't think this is going to, we're not, it, we're, it's nothing like the GFC. I don't think we're going to get any place close to what the GFC was. You know, uh, <clears throat> The GFC was occasioned by an incredible, uh, unique, in my opinion, exercise in stupidity. Because we had this irrational, talk about the third stage of the bull market, we had this irrational belief that house prices only go up. And that led to a belief that mortgage securities never default in any systematic way. And then, and then you saw the behavior that was, you saw that movie, The Big Short, great movie. But you, then you saw people, you know, what they have strippers going out and buying condos uh, with, with borrowed money. Uh, and that was facilitated by the fact that we had subprime mortgages. So Alex comes in to me, he says, I'd like to borrow money to buy a house. I said, how's your income? He says, good income. You got much asset? I got lots of assets. Good. I say, good. Okay, I'll lend you money. I'll pay you. You have to pay 7% if you document your assets and your income. But if you don't want to do that, you have to pay 11. He says, I'll pay 11. What does that tell you? No assets, no income. We call these things liar loans. But anyway, so subprime was invented. And then, 
the banks took the subprime, packaged it into highly levered, tranched mortgage-backed securities, and they kept the bottom tranche so to facilitate the process because the process was so profitable. So it was a house of cards, a fallacious built on fallacious. And we don't have anything like that, that in, the, in the system today. And, and, and not only do we have the error of subprime and the error of mortgage-backs, but the stupidity was concentrated in the systemically important banks. And they started to fold, because banks run on faith, and everybody lost faith in the banks. So it, it was a, you know, we, people were talking about the end of the financial system, the, melt, the meltdown of the financial system. And, and it was one of the greatest buying opportunities we ever saw. Uh, you know, and Oak Tree spent, I think, $650 million a week in the 15 weeks following the Lehman bankruptcy, uh, from then to the end of the year. So, you know, 15 weeks at, at, at 650 is uh, $10 billion. In a, in a quarter, we invested. There's nothing like that today. And, and, and psychology would have to go beyond despair to suicidal uh, to produce a replay, and I don't see that. And by the way, look, look what happened in the last week. Now people are saying, well, I think that we've passed the high in inflation, which means that the Fed is probably going to stop raising interest rates and maybe pivot to loosening uh, money. And uh, look, now it looks like she uh, is, is, is looking for an off-ramp so he can get away from the extreme statements that he made right around the time of the Party Congress uh, and, and get back to normal. Uh, everybody's optimistic again today. So, so the pendulum, it doesn't just go in a straight line. I think that the world is more optimistic today than it was two weeks ago. Uh, I think, uh, but I think it's going further towards unhappiness. Fantastic. I wanted to ask you something a little bit away from that just for a moment, which was, well, actually it is kind of late, I suppose, but going back to a memo that you wrote in 2021. Um, I think at the time your son had been staying with you. Yeah, exactly. That's the one. And, um, and you wrote, cryptocurrencies were mentioned there, which seems obviously kind of, I don't know if anyone's followed the news recently, kind of in the news at the moment. Uh, and you said you obviously you were naturally conservative and skeptical around this kind of financial innovation. Uh, but at the time you said you didn't know enough about crypto, so you had yes. more to learn. Uh, I suppose in the time since, have you reached an opinion on that? And do you, do you think there's now a, a, well, any you know, case to be made for, for my for, for, I, when. When Bitcoin first entered our consciousness, which was 2017, and that's the year it went from 1,000 to 20,000, uh, I came out very negative on it because it, it was not backed by anything and, and, and doesn't produce cash flow, so it can't be valued. And I, I think that there are many things that fall under the heading of the things that can't be valued because they don't produce cash flow. You know, what produces cash flow? Stocks, bonds, buildings, companies. What doesn't produce cash flow? Art diamonds, furs, oil, gold, crypto. You can't talk about the right price, in my opinion. So, uh, you know, you can explain the virtues of crypto, and, uh, and, and Andrew put me on an educational program to learn about them. Uh, and, you know, you talk about the fact that people don't trust the banks, and the, and the third world needs, uh, needs uh, something more dependable and something more portable and, and so forth. Uh, but you, you can't translate that into a price. You can't say, and that makes it worth X. Just like you know, with oil, uh, I remember, uh, I guess 05, was it 05 maybe, uh, or 06, 
the price of oil hit 147, you would say, well, what makes it worth 147? And people would say, well, you know, we're using more than we're finding. Uh, and uh, much of it is in the hands of countries that are hostile to us and blah, blah, blah. So 147, great. Okay, so six months later, it was 35. The same facts held true, but, but there was no direct linkage to a price. You can only price an asset that produces cash flow, in my opinion, uh, or has the potential to produce cash flow. Uh, anyway, so, so I, I learned all that stuff. And my son, who lived with me for three months at the beginning of the pandemic, he moved his family in with ours, which was obviously great, and it was a silver lining to the pandemic. Uh, he, he had some novel ideas. He says, number one, you shouldn't talk about things you don't know about. Uh, and I think I took that advice. Um, and, uh, and you should study, uh, study this. Uh, so I have studied. I still am not talking about it because I haven't reached a conclusion. Uh, and and I, think it, I think it's very hard to reach a conclusion, frankly. And, you know, uh, his generation sees intuitive merit in crypto. As for my generation, I, I have a favorite quote from uh, John Kenneth Galbraith. He wrote a book, uh, everybody should look at it, and it's called The Short History of Financial Euphoria. And believe me, it's short. And I love short books because uh, I'm a slow reader. But he, he, he says uh, that one of the outstanding characteristics of the financial markets is shortness of memory. And uh, uh, anyone who has any memory at all, uh, he, he says, uh, you know, memories are quickly forgotten when the new thing materializes. And uh, anyone who is burdened with memory at all is quickly dismissed uh, uh, by a young and always supremely confident generation as, as uh, uh, incapable of grasping the wonders of the present. And uh, I think that's a great, great message. And by the way, one of the themes that repeats from cycle to cycle to cycle is that there's always a new thing. And the, since there's no history to more to, the, the, un, the, the new thing is capable of reaching any level, uh, maybe a bubble, and, uh, and then it usually is the thing that gets hurt the most in the subsequent correction. You know, and I was very fortunate because I came into this industry in September of 69. The banks invested in what were called the Nifty 50, the 50 best and fastest growing companies in America. And if you invested in those companies the day I got there in 69, if you held them for five years, you lost almost all your money because uh, they were a bubble. They were, some of them were great companies, many of them were overrated, but all of them were overpriced. And they were, they were selling at PE ratios of 80 and 90, and uh, five years later at PE ratios of eight or nine. Well, that's an easy way to lose 90% of your money. And then companies, some of the, some of the companies faltered on top of that. So, so the point is, and, but Andrew said to me, he said, Dad, you've made a lot of great success in your life by, by being skeptical of innovation, but that doesn't mean that all innovation is worthless, so you have to try to, uh, uh, try to not have a knee-jerk reaction of what worked in the past and try to be open-minded. And I think, I think that the, the main message of that memo was open-mindedness. And, and when investors say, oh, I do this, I would never do that. And if everybody says we do this, but we don't do that, then that's where you find the bargain. So, I, I want to follow up on that on that Galbraith quote. Where I'm, I'm curious where we are in terms of investor psychology. I mean, it does seem like we have pockets of 
you know, great euphoria. Certainly in the past few years, there have been, you know, SPACs and NFTs. We could talk about, you know, many different things. And, and yet we are seeing, you know, the market shift, but are we seeing shift all at once? You asked Alex, uh, and by the way, it's easy to say Alex, because yes. they're both yeah. Alex. But, it's why uh, we, well, yeah, it's yeah. just easy. Yeah. I never forget a name. Um, but it, it's, it's, you asked, where do we stand in the swing of, of psychology? And, I, I, what I, and one thing I would stress for all of you is that in the real world, things fluctuate between pretty good and not so hot. But in the market, psychology goes from flawless to hopeless. And uh, you know, at the end of 20, at the beginning of 21, I think we were, we were at flawless. And uh, when, by the way, obviously, when things go from flawless to hopeless, a lot of money is lost. When things go from hopeless to flawless, a lot of money is made. But I, I think we were at flawless. You know? And by the way, at flawless, what do people say? Risk is my friend. The more risk you take, the more money you make. And anyway, I can't see anything to worry about. And that's how you get in big trouble. So now I would say the pendulum has swung and because there's nobody who thinks that the world is without problems now or that the markets are uh, just a license to print money and so forth. So I would say the psychology has swung from flawless to middle. But of course, no pendulum swings like this. And it has swung a little past middle on the way to hopeless. but but certainly not there. So th we, this is a market in transition. And, and you must always be aware of this, the pendulum of psychology, but you should never think that it, it, it's always here or always here. It spends most of its time in the middle traveling. And it's, it, you, it, the, the key is to take advantage of the travel. So and that, that flawless is what I think you've described before as so the, the sort of third stage of a bull run where sort of people think it's only yes, going up exactly. from here and things yeah, and yeah. we're sort of subsiding yeah, somewhere yeah. from that. Yeah. Can I, can I talk about that for a minute? Yeah, absolutely. Please, okay. Yeah. So this is interesting. You know, like 50 years ago when I was just a kid, somebody gave me a gift and it was the description of the three stages of the bull market. I'm glad you mentioned that, Alex. Because it's really important, and all the you know my my approach is is simplistic, uh, and, uh, and and these simple uh, adages help to focus on it. But it, it it's really true. So you, ha you you know there's been a correction, there's been a crash of whatever you want to call it, and stocks are down here, and they've been done terribly for some period of years. Everybody's deserted them, and. The first stage of the bull market occurs when only a few intelligent and f unusually far-sighted people, hopefully mavericks, begin to believe that there could be improvement. The second stage occurs when most people accept that improvement is actually taking place. And the third stage is reached when everybody and his brother thinks things can only get better. And clearly, if you buy in the first stage, you make a lot of money as it transitions to the third stage. But if you buy in the third stage, you lose a lot of money when that optimism turns out to be unwarranted. And that's, that's most of what you have to know. And uh, so we're on the way now. Uh, uh, and, and in the global financial crisis, I turned it around. And I said, the first stage of the bear market occurs when people begin to believe that, that expectations are too high and psychology is too high and there could be a retrenchment. The second stage is reached when people understand that the correction is actually taking place. And the third stage is reached when everybody thinks things will get worse forever. Very simple. Really holds true. And, and so 
we are somewhere in the second stage of the of the bear market. That's going to ask because okay. you know, as I say, nobody thinks that 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 that, that we're in you know that, that we're in the Garden of Eden anymore, and the, the bloom is off the rose in many areas, and of course everybody's lost a lot of money, which which then has uh, has the effect of reining in psychology, um, and you know everybody people psychology is now people are emphasizing uh, the things that are wrong. And, uh, you know, I mean, for, just for example, uh, we had a conference over in London uh, in June. And my f the feeling, and uh, June was a really depressed period. And um, the feeling I had was that, what, what do people say? They say, well, we have inflation and that's bad, but the Fed will raise rates to kill it and then we'll get a recession and that's bad. In other words, it's all bad. And then, you know, at a different time, they'll say it's all good. And that's this swing that I'm talking about. But I think now we're in, in the middle, a little past the center, but I think swinging in the direction of, of people acknowledging that there are some serious problems. I, I want to ask a question about the last 13 years or so. We talked about how long this trend went on, at, you know, at perhaps irrational prices. There have been ideas that there are innovations that have changed cycles. A lot of people have talked about passive investing where passive investors you know, buy tomorrow what, what active investors buy today. Do you think these changes have exacerbated uh, the, 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 the length or the severity of cycles? I don't think those, those are what did it. I think it was really the continuation of the, of the, of the low interest rate environment. You know, remember that, that the Fed took interest, the Fed funds rate to zero at the end of 08, which was just after the Lehman bankruptcy, to try to protect the economy and, and bring it back, and it left the Fed funds rate at zero for seven years of zero interest rates. Free money, you know, you want to borrow some money, you can go out and buy something, and you don't have to pay me for the money, you can have it for nothing. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and rates went up a little bit, but then there was a temper tantrum, so people, they went back down, and, now they're back, and then they took them back down to zero in March of 20. That's a long period of zero rates, and I think that that was the dominant thing. There, there, are, there are always things that sometimes make the cycle go too far. That was the case here. I don't, I don't think it was passive uh, investing. Uh, it was the fact that people wanted to get invested. Passive made it easy, maybe. Uh, more and more money. You know, the higher, the, the, the crazy thing is that the higher uh, prices go, the more people want stuff, you know. When I was in, in Japan last week, I said, you know, if you, if you go to Mitsukoshi department store and there's a sale on, people buy more. And if there are further markdowns, they buy still more. In our world, it works the other way. If the prices go down, people want them less. And, and when they get to the bottom, they say, I'm going to get rid of everything I have. because uh, they don't know it's the bottom. But, but uh, so I, I, I just think this, this was an unusual, powerful cycle based on long, really, really time low rates. This is a really interesting point about the, the ease of investing. I mean, I think a lot of the euphoria we saw last year and, and a lot of the news stories about the markets were focused on, you know, I mean, trading became, became free and, and, you know, actually subsidized in, in certain ways. Um, I, I, I'm interested in how you think what the swing of the pendulum will affect the psychology of investors who've come up in the market, maybe even not of the last 10 years, maybe even just of the f last few years, yeah. Well, sure, I mean, look, uh, Prior to the pandemic, 
for the previous 10 years, nobody had ever seen anything go down. And there's, there's a book called Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, which, which has a lot of good ideas in it. And he compares investing to uh, Russian roulette. There's this gun, it has six chambers in a cylinder, and there's one bullet, and you spin the cylinder, and you pull the trigger at your temple. And I, I've never understood the fun of that, but, uh, <laughs> but he says that investing is like a gun with 100 chambers in the cylinder and one bullet. So you hold it to your temple, and you pull the trigger 20 times, doesn't kill you, and you tend to say, well, I guess there's no bullet. And you know, after, after 13 years, 13 up years, you tend to say, well, I guess stocks only go up. And of course, that's exactly the wrong time to reach that conclusion, because having gone up for 13 years, they're now precarious. Now, I, I, I wrote in one memo that, that uh, during the pandemic, you know, there were no sporting events to bet on. You couldn't go to a casino in Las Vegas, so people turned to the stock market. And there are always people who are willing to accommodate uh, the increasing popularity of the market. And there was a guy who, who said that stocks only go up. And there was this movement to the meme stocks and the Reddit bulletin board and all that stuff. And all these factors conspired to make stocks too popular, which, you know, and if you, if you think about the cycle, things become too popular and then they become not popular enough and vice versa. It's always, it's all a matter of extremes. So, uh, you know, so yes, yeah, so the meme stocks got popular and can you imagine some guy who says stocks only go up and then they go up for a while that people say, oh, I guess he's right, you know? But so you had a lot of people coming into the market who didn't know anything about how the market works or, and, and didn't know it sometimes goes down and that it's very painful. Uh, I remember in the tech bubble in, in like 99, uh, you know, the, the stocks and, well, in the 90s, stocks were up 20% a year for 10 years on average. It, it was, that was the great, greatest decade in history. And, and uh, everybody was saying, oh, I don't care, you know, who cares? If, the, if, my, if I lose 40% of my 401k, it's fine. I, I'm up so much. Believe me, when it was down, when it down 40%, they cared. And they always will. Well, now, remind me of your question, though. I probably forgot it. Oh, I was just asking how, so now that they have experienced that stocks do go down, how will it affect their psychology going forward? Well, it, I think that, I think it, 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 you know, it pierces that uh, feeling of invulnerability. Uh, people are disillusioned. What? What? Stocks can go down? I thought they only go up. And, and, when, pe and, and, and uh, when, when people are disillusioned, then it, I think it takes, it usually takes some time to rebuild trust, you know? And when I look at things like, well, I'm not supposed to say cryptocurrencies, but when I look at things like SPACs and memes and uh, all those, and FANGs and all the things that did so well in 20, you know, uh, or the tech bubble of, of 99 or the nifty 50 in 69, uh, it, it has this character to me of, you know, the, the Hans Christian Andersen story about the emperor's new clothes, you know? And the, 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 these guys convinced the emperor is not so smart that they make the most beautiful clothes and that they're such wonderful clothes that only the smartest people in the world can see them. And they charge him a bunch of money for a suit of, of nothing. And he's walking down the street naked and nobody says anything except some little kid comes out of the crowd. He says, that guy's naked. It takes a maverick voice to point out the folly, uh, uh, but the folly is always undertaken in the up cycle, and then people get disillusioned, and disillusionment is, is a very hard uh, emotion to live with, and, and people feel betrayed, I think, 
and that's the one of the things that makes the pendulum swing too far towards negativism, but give the bargain hunter uh, the greatest opportunities. It's interesting to stick with the theme of people being naked. That the Warren Buffett quote about you know the tide coming in. And yes. You know, swimming, and well, it's all about nakedness, isn't it? A lot. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. That and Russian roulette. People say investment's boring, but I don't, I don't see it. Um, you had. I don't want to steal your question. You had a question about, about, about liquid, li oh. liquidity, illiquidity that you wanted to ask. Okay. This, this is about the illiquidity premium. So Cliff Asness has said that the, the, the illiquidity premium is actually an illusion. There may be, in fact, an illiquidity discount, which, which to your point about when it's down 40%, you actually don't want to sell and lock in that permanent loss. Um, wh what do you make of, of, that, of that argument about the liquid, liquidity premium? Well, look, I think, I think it's, it's very important to think hard about all forms of risk premium. Because people say, well, well, you know, people say, as I said before, the more, money, the more risk you take, the more money you make. Risk is my friend. That's working on the assumption that there's a risk premium, that if you make riskier investments, you'll have a higher return. Now, I caution always to point out that it can't be true that riskier assets produce higher returns, dependably. Because if it were true, then by definition, they wouldn't be risky. So you can't say that. It makes no sense to say risky investments produce higher returns. What it, the, the, the truth is that riskier assets have to appear to offer a premium return or nobody will make risky investments. And that makes perfect sense. And that's the way it is. But they don't have to deliver. Now, illiquidity is a form of risk. Now, people say, if I make illiquid investments, I should get a higher return than on liquid investments for, for taking the risk, the illiquidity premium. Uh, I think it's called the liquidity premium, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. But, but anyway, uh, and, and I wrote a memo on liquidity. I think it was in 16 or 15 or something like that when, when people started to talk about liquidity going away. And I, I pointed out that risk, r the liquidity premium, and all forms of risk premium are, do not, are not naturally occurring. They don't, it's not like a trees get leaves and, and birds grow feathers. They only occur if people demand them. And in fact, when people think that risk is, is beneficial, they stop asking for risk premiums and they don't get premium returns and they set up for trouble. And this is what I think the, most of the endowments did around 0456. So it's kind of like, we used to talk about reverse psychology when we were kids. If you, if you think that illiquidity is a good thing or not a bad thing, and you, and you d fail to demand a liquidity premium, you won't get one. That seems pretty obvious. And, and if everybody jumps on the bandwagon of illiquid investments, there won't be a liquidity premium. Now, I think what Cliff was talking about was that this year, this is the, I think it's the worst year, it's the worst year in history for the 10-year. This is as of 9.30. The worst year in history for the 10-year, the sixth worst year in history for the S&P 500, and the worst year in history for the two of them, for the sure, so-called 60-40 sure. portfolio. Sure. So, so in this horrible environment, public private equity funds and private credit funds are reporting down two, down three. Everybody, oh, well, that's great. I want to get some of that. Well, so, if, so that means that people will, now it's, it's obvious that if public securities are down 20, private are down two, there's something wrong. Because most of the, for the most part, 
the underlying values are the same. The, they're, they're both similarly affected by the economy. In fact, private securities might be more affected because they're smaller. Exactly, smaller companies, riskier companies. Uh, so, so I think what Cliff is talking about. So now everybody says, "Oh, I, I, I'm going to go into, I, I'm going to go into uh, illiquids because they don't go down." Now, the, the 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 and I cover this in the current memo. I have a section on volatility and a section on on the on private marks this year. But the question is, is it illusory or not? And if people say, oh, I want to go into privates because they don't go down, is that, is that a good reason? And by the way, one thing I like to point out is that if they don't go down this year, that means they're not going to go up next year. So you, you, can't, you can't go down much less than the market this year and participate in the market recovery next year. It doesn't work that way. Uh, um, uh, but uh, anyway, uh, oh, so there's an interesting uh, article that came from the FT, you know, Robin Wigglesworth, you know that yeah, name? Yeah. So, uh, I don't even, is that a woman or a man? It's man. a man. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, um, he, he, he discussed a study was done by some Florida academics, and he said, you know, m the initial reaction is to think, oh, the, the, the GPs are duping the LPs by not having markdowns. But he goes on to say, maybe, Maybe the GPs are giving the LPs what they want, which is uh, an asset class that doesn't go down in the bad market. Uh, well, it's interesting to think about, and, and uh, obviously, like many things, it can be looked at many ways, but, but we'll see. I have to ask what will become of, uh, become of those kinds of assets and funds as the pendulum continues to swing. Probably nothing great in, in your estimation. Uh, well, you know, uh, what matters is the long run. And what matters is the, is the return that these funds produce over their lifetime. Uh, and, and, uh, but, you know, in our business, there's always a lot that remains to be seen. Excellent stuff. Well, that was our interview with Howard, live from the CityWire Alternatives Retreat at the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco. And Alex Lick, you know, a real treat to spend that much time with an investor like Howard Marks. We've talked about the interview well, we talked about it a lot before we did it, quite a lot afterwards. Well, what are some of your big takeaways? I mean, just it just first of all, such an honor, obviously, to to speak to to Howard. But what a what a time to talk to him too. I mean, to that he's forecasting that now is the time when the pendulum is swinging. You know, for for a long time he's been saying. I, I suppose we should be careful about the word forecast. He's not a fan of uh, of the, the concept of a forecast. Correct. He's more seeing where the pendulum is right now. Um, but for a long time, he's been saying, you know, people are not heeding potential risks. And now he's saying, you know, people are starting to heed risks. And, and perhaps the, the pendulum is swinging so far that this is the point at which people have become overly cautious and, and, and all the greed comes out and the fear comes in. And which is, which is you know, where the opportunities for buyers, especially of distressed assets like, like Oak Tree, really have their moment. Absolutely, yeah, and it sort of feeds into his his idea of the the three stages of a bull market or, or bear market if if you turn it around and, and where we are and where the opportunities are. I thought that what a great time to interview him, right? You know, this moment in the cycle, moments in cycles that he has obviously taken advantage of in the past, that fantastic trade in the great financial crisis. Yeah, arguably like one of the best trades of all time. And it's just cool, you know, just to present this in front of this audience of people who are trying to figure out what investments to make and particularly what funds to 
to select um, how to weather, you know, the next few years. Just, just I couldn't almost think of a better speaker to help guide them and, and you know, pr- provide some signposts along the way. And frankly, yeah, as you alluded to, at a better time, right? You know, cut to the chase, listener. You know, this is a pretty, pretty much the best time you could hear from this guy. You know, given where, you know, given where he thinks we are in the cycle, probably where we are in the cycle, and the opportunity said that he sees ahead. I thought it was fascinating. I thought it was also fascinating. We chatted to him a little bit about crypto during the sort of white heat of this FTX collapse. And um, as we alluded to, he has not quite had a shifting view on it, but but he has sort of one memo in 2017, a little more forthright than, uh, than the one in 2020. Yeah, very forthright saying, you know, it's not real. It's not real with a lot of exclamation points. I got the, I'm curious what you think. I got the view that, that he's, that's sort of what he still thinks and perhaps even thinks that, as I think, that he's, he's being borne out now. Um, to a major extent, I mean, there's no cash. You know, we, we I don't want to go into the whole crypto thing, but I, I was. There's also a danger that you know, even if we put this out within a day of recording it, the whole it, it could have shifted. You know. Yeah. Oh, oh, sure. Which, which I think, even if it rises to to a hundred grand by the time when this comes out, it almost proves the point. But anyway, I, I, you know, it was. I think that's still his view. I think that he doesn't necessarily want to, you know, say that because, uh, because of perhaps some. Marx intra Marx family uh, dynamics, but uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I think that's still where his head's at. Absolutely. I suppose the flip side is, you know, he is a he is a student of of, of the markets. He's, you know, his research is very diligent. We've read his memos. You know the depth he goes into. So I can also see that, you know, he's not insincere in his belief that you know he has work to do. I would think so. Maybe yeah. hold two ideas at the same time there. But yeah, look, you know, really interesting time to talk to him. We greatly enjoyed it, and I think the audience did too. You know, I don't want to slam previous audiences that we've had, but I've certainly been on stage before, and panels are with speakers, and you know, you look out, and there's people on their phones, or you know, a little a little chatter going on at the back of the room. But um, my take on this, at least, was that that, that was a pretty captive and, and, and raptured audience. Well, they, they were certainly captive. We, we we locked the door, but they were they were no no they were they were absolutely fascinated with. Um, I mean, I mean, listen. This is one of the greatest uh, thinkers and investors, uh, you know, in, in markets ever. So it's it's just to be able to talk to him and, and particularly to present that to our live audience and also to this podcast audience is is really a, a pleasure. Absolutely. Well, look, I think that's a great note on which to end. Um, so we'll say thank you again to Howard for for taking part, and it's a goodbye from me, Alex Steger, and for me, Alex Rosenberg. Mm-hmm.